This episode of GNL Voice is sponsored by eConnect's new Tito Tracker with facial recognition. Enhance your existing surveillance network with near 100% accurate facial recognition and protect against AML compliance threats. Visit eConnectGlobal.com for more information. That's the letter E, ConnectGlobal.com. Lynn M. Zook grew up in Las Vegas during that mythic time when legendary entertainers performed regularly in town. Large neon signs proclaimed who was appearing in the showrooms up and down the famed Las Vegas Strip. The history of her adopted hometown has always been important to her, and she has strived to preserve it through her historic preservation projects and writings. She conducted over 100 oral histories with longtime Las Vegans, created a first-person documentary of the town's history, and worked with others to save the Las Vegas she knew. She now shares that history through her website, ClassicLasVegas.com, and through her books. And today, she shares it with our listeners here on GNL Voice. So, Lynn, welcome to GNL Voice. And uh, for our listeners out there, I want to introduce you as you're a, a Las Vegas historian. You have two books out there, Gambling on a Dream, Volume 1, The Classic Las Vegas Strip from 1930 to 1955, and Gambling on a Dream, Volume 2 from 1956 to 1973. So, Lynn, welcome to GNL Voice. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very, uh, very glad to be here. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in, you know, the, the Las Vegas history and classic Las Vegas and, and, uh, and how that interested you? I uh, grew up in Las Vegas. Um, my uh, parents moved. We moved there in uh, 1961. And uh, for a number of years, my mother was a showroom waitress on, uh, on the strip. And so uh, I had uh, the good fortune to uh, to grow up in Las Vegas during that uh, mythic time when uh, the marquees up and down the strip uh, hosted some of the biggest names in entertainment. After 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 I left home to go to college, uh, my family remained in uh, Las Vegas, and so I'd go home to visit a few times every year, and I kind of had a front seat to. Uh, especially from the 90s on, a, a front seat to the changing face of Las Vegas. Yes, I I moved there in 1986. The Mirage didn't even exist then, so the landmark was there. And, <laughs> you know, so I saw all of that stuff get blown up and then replaced by, you know, the what the, the mega casinos. Can you tell us, can you tell our listeners what it was like growing up in Las Vegas during that, you know, during the 60s? It was very different than Las Vegas today uh, because Las Vegas was, of course, a, a much smaller uh, city uh, 50 years ago. And it wasn't as spread out as it is today. Um, Decatur Boulevard basically ended at Tropicana. <laughs> there was nothing beyond Tropicana. And... Um, I went through elementary school basically with the same group of kids and then went to junior high with them and then also went uh, to high school with them. So it was, uh, as I said, it was a very different time. So your first book, Gambling on a Dream, Volume 1, uh, focuses on the years 1930 to 1955. 
Um, tell us about those years and what it was, what Las Vegas was like then. Uh, was it really called the Strip back then? Back in the early days, it was uh, referred to as Highway 91 because it was the uh, it was the highway that connected Las Vegas with Southern California, and it wasn't until the late 30s that um, it uh, got nicknamed. Uh, the Strip, because um, uh, McAvee, who had been, uh, Guy McAvee, who had been a uh, vice captain uh, here in Los Angeles with the police force, uh, had seen, had uh, been very, very familiar with the Sunset Strip. And so when he got fired, he moved uh, to Las Vegas and envisioned um creating a sunset uh, strip style strip in Las Vegas. Uh, he was, uh, of course, uh, beat at that uh, by Tom, Tommy Hull, who uh, built uh, the first, ho- first hotel, the El Rancho, uh, in 1941 on uh, basically the corner of what is today Sahara and Las Vegas Boulevard South. Okay. Now, I was looking at some timelines uh, from the Las Vegas Sun about Las Vegas, and and I didn't know that that uh, gambling was actually banned in Nevada for quite some time, and it wasn't until 1931 uh, or so that the Nevada legislature repealed the gambling ban. So, how did that... So, was that like the genesis of of the Nevada and the Las Vegas that we know is when that ban was lifted, everything just kind of, kind of grew. Yes. Uh, it uh, didn't happen overnight. It was, especially in uh, the beginning, it was uh, more of a steady growth, slow but sure. But uh, basically gambling, Nevada was the only state that you could gamble in legally. Everywhere else in the country, it was illegal. And so if you went to a backroom gambling hall in uh, Nebraska or New New Jersey or any other place, you ran the risk of it getting raided and you getting swept up in the raid and arrested. But in Las Vegas and in Reno, you could gamble without... uh, having to worry about uh, the cops breaking down the door. Okay. And in uh, uh, in the early years, Reno was much more popular than Las Vegas. But once uh, the hotels began to appear on uh, Highway 91, and especially after World War II, Las Vegas overtook Reno and became the more popular uh, gaming destination. Is that... Is that because it's of its proximity to Southern California, or was it just a fluke of nature, so to speak, that Las Vegas became uh, more popular than Reno? Was a, a couple of factors. One, of course, being uh, Las Vegas's proximity to Southern California, and especially after World War II, um, with the uh, the ration or the rationing. Uh, finally being uh, no longer a factor uh, for everyday life and the troops coming home, people wanted to travel. And the Las Vegas News Bureau came into its own. It was uh, funded by what they called the uh, Livewire Fund. Uh, Businesses uh, put into uh, that fund. And the Las Vegas News Bureau uh, 
had a, a number of photographers that uh, went to the hotels. They would take pictures of the tourists and then send the pictures back to the tourists' hometown uh, to be, you know, run in the local papers. And they also photographed the entertainers on uh, the growing Las Vegas Strip, and they just made Las Vegas look like an incredibly fun place to visit. How did the politics of the time affect Las Vegas? Because I know, you know... um like prohibition was just repealed in 1933. So how did that all affect Las Vegas or, or gaming in general in, in Nevada? Uh, well, Las Vegas, of course, was a very small uh, town back in uh, the early 30s. And for the most part, they, you know, they turned a blind eye to uh, establishments that uh, did have drinking and thus were breaking uh, prohibition. Uh, the Paradise Club, which was the very first uh, club built on uh, Highway 91, basically where uh, the frontier used to sit, uh, they had uh, a still out back in the kitchen <laughs> coop or in the uh, chicken coop and they sold uh, alcohol. And once prohibition was lifted, they immediately got uh, their liquor license. But uh, the gentleman who owned the Paradise Club was uh, a friend of Al Capone's. And so uh, that may be why they never got raided. <laughs> okay. So how did politics affect uh, Las Vegas back then, you know, in, uh, you know, night in the thirties and, and forties, you know, we had FDR, we had world war two. Uh, it was to me a very tumultuous time. How did, how did politics and, and the world events affect Las Vegas? Oh, well, as I said, uh, a little earlier, Las Vegas was a very small town back then. It was basically a, a dusty railroad town. And uh, it got hit very hard uh, by the Depression. And uh, the building of Hoover Dam uh, brought in an influx of uh, workers. And on Friday and Saturday nights, they would come into town and, uh, you know, party like there was no tomorrow and then go back to work. But um, so for most of the depression, they had uh, tough times in uh, Las Vegas. I interviewed a number of people that grew up uh, there back then, and uh, they all told similar stories to just how much uh, business, you know, how, how businesses dried up and customers, and it was a very bleak time. But um, with the coming of World War II, a number of Las Vegas high students, uh, both graduates and those still in school, uh, joined up and went to war. And then after the war, came home and built Las and built up uh, basically modern Las Vegas. Okay, wow, that's it's amazing how how events have changed it. Cause I was looking at the timelines here and like in 1930, it says that the population of Las Vegas was around 5,000. And then 10 years later, um, it's, it's approaching 9,000. So right after the war and, and getting into, 
um, the closure of that event, it's it's starting to grow. So when when did when did Nellis Air Force Base come into play for Las Vegas? Because I'm sure that had a, an impact. Yes, uh, Nellis came in um, in the 1940s, as I recall, and it was the Nellis Gunnery School at the time, and that was. Um, the coming, the building of uh, the gunnery school is basically what shut down uh, the red light district uh, downtown block 16. Because uh, the military let uh, the, the uh, you know, the business uh, people, businessmen of Las Vegas know that uh, if they were going to build a gunnery school there, um, the red light district had to go away. Okay. So, so even back then, there was a distinction between the Strip and downtown? Oh, yes. I mean, downtown, even when uh, I was growing up there, until uh, the Boulevard Mall came, uh, until the Boulevard uh, Mall was built, uh, downtown was where you went. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, that's where we went uh, to uh, buy my, you know, back to school clothes. And you know, in addition to the Golden Nugget and the Pioneer Club and the Golden Gate and uh, the Horseshoe Club and the El Cortez. In fact, right across the street from the El Cortez was uh, Sears and Roebuck and where the Medical Arts Building is today. That's the old J.C. Penney's building. And Ronzoni's was uh, further west on Fremont Street, basically up around uh, across the street from, I want to say, the Pioneer Club. Wow, and that's amazing. So, yeah. And Las Vegas uh, originally began, you know, on Fremont Street with uh, the auction back in 1905. And it, uh, it grew out into like the Huntridge district, uh, by the 1940s, but, or the early forties, but for the most part, uh, Fremont street was the center of town until, uh, after the war. And so there was a very big distinction between the existing Fremont street and, uh, Highway 91 as it was growing into uh, the Las Vegas Strip. In fact, there were still homes on Fremont Street uh, when I was a teenager in high school. Do those homes still exist? Uh, not on Fremont Street. Not if, okay. I was, wasn't sure if they were turned into something else. So um, when, did, when did Las Vegas become associated with the mob? Uh, well, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky um, had gotten in uh, an interest in Las Vegas in the early uh, 40s. They owned, uh, they ran the, the uh, race wire, and they made enough money off of that that they bought uh, an interest in the El Cortez. And that's where uh, Siegel got the idea he was he was very aware of what was going on out on Highway 91, and he got the idea that they needed to uh, build a hotel um, on Highway 91. And so that's you know 
he uh, discovered that Billy Wilkerson was building the Flamingo Hotel, and he went out uh, to take a look and decided that uh, he wanted in. And so uh, Billy Wilkerson had uh, lost all his mu- had lost his nest egg uh, at the craps table, and. Um, needed a partner and became partners with Siegel and Siegel kind of took over and elbowed uh, Billy Wilkerson out and uh, finally bought Wilkerson out and Wilkerson fled to Paris. (laughs) (laughs) And then Siegel was uh, murdered in 1947, if I have my dates right. That's uh, about right, yeah, at uh, Virginia Hills home in uh, Beverly Hills. And... uh, Basically, at the same time that happened, um, new ownership of uh, (laughs) the Sands came in. Uh, Gus Greenbaugh and um, his crew uh, basically came in and uh, took over for the existing uh, silent partners in uh, the Flamingo ownership. So... I know in your research of your your books, you said you interviewed a lot of different people. Can you can you tell us about some of those interviews and some of the most fascinating things you've learned? Um, I've interviewed a number of uh, Las Ve- uh, Las Vegans who had uh, lived there, you know, grown up there, and so um, guys like Ed von Tobel Jr. And uh, a couple of neon designers, uh, especially Betty Willis and uh, Brian Lemming. Uh, yeah, I interviewed uh, close to 100 people. And so I got a lot of wonderful stories about uh, the Las Vegas that they knew and how, how it changed, especially after uh, World War II. What was what was were some of the most interesting things for you um, that you learned that you didn't know before? Um, I, I learned a great deal about uh, uh, ne- building neon signs because uh, both uh, Brian Lemming and uh, Betty Willis uh, were great storytellers, and uh, I also learned uh, I did an extensive interview with uh, Peg Crockett. Her and uh, she and her husband George ran Alamo Airways, uh, which was uh, the precursor uh, to uh, McCarran Airport. And uh, Howard Hughes used to fly into uh, their their airport all the time. He originally, when he originally started coming to Las Vegas, he used to fly into the old uh, North uh, North Las Vegas airport when it was run by uh, Florence Murphy and her husband. But uh, so I learned a, a great deal. You know, Howard Hughes always wore tennis shoes and he never carried any money. There was a man that came behind Howard Hughes that paid for whatever, you know, <laughs> Howard's bill was. <laughs> and he, ne- he never he always wore tennis shoes. I didn't know that. That's... Yes. And according to uh, Florence Murphy, he flew in his stocking feet. Because the first thing that would come out uh, when he'd go to get out of the plane, he'd raise his arm with his tennis shoes in his hand. <laughs> huh. Okay, so what, uh, what about getting married and divorce? When did that become a signature um, of Las Vegas? Uh, well, that became... Uh, a popular thing up in uh, Reno originally, because uh, uh, back then you 
you went to what was basically a divorcee ranch and women could go there, establish residency by staying there for a couple of weeks and then uh, file for divorce. And in fact, down in Las Vegas, down in Las Vegas, uh, Rhea Gable was about to uh, divorce her husband, movie star Clark Gable, and uh, she established residency um, in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas, because of that, uh, became a very popular uh, place for uh Deforces to uh, come and establish residency so that uh, they could get out of their marriage. Let's moving move into your next book, the nineteen fifty six to nineteen seventy three. What what were the the biggest differences between the first book and the second book? What, besides the timing, what what differentiated Las Vegas between those dates? Uh, uh, basically, the Las Vegas Strip was growing. Uh, it, as I said, it uh, began with the El Rancho and then uh, the Frontier and then the Flamingo. And from there, um, more and more hotels uh, were being built, the Desert Inn, the Sahara, the Sands, A Place in the Sun, probably the most mythic uh, hotel uh, on the Las Vegas Strip for a number of years. And then the, uh, the Riviera and the Dunes. And so by 1950, uh, by the late 50s, there was the concern that Las Vegas, uh, or the mid-50s, I should say, there was the concern that uh, Las Vegas, the Strip was being overbuilt and there weren't going to be enough people that would come and stay in for the number of hotels that were being built. And the Riviera, uh, of course, was the first uh high-rise hotel, and there was some concern that uh, the ground wouldn't be able to support a nine-story building. <laughs> and now we have the, the but, mega, uh, mega buildings out there. Yeah, right. And it's kind of like, well, there's a lot of caliche there. Yes. <laughs> I, I think the building will be okay. Yep. And so, uh, like, uh, the Riviera and... Uh, the Dunes and the Royal Nevada were all built in the same year. And out of those three hotels, the Royal Nevada failed, but uh, the Riviera and the Dunes uh, were able to uh, carry on. And the Dunes got a new owner, uh, Major Riddle, and they uh, brought in Minsky's Burlesque and uh, the founding fathers and the church were all aghast. Oh my God, we can't have nude. We can't have nude women on the stage. (laughs) You know, everybody was outraged and Minsky's Burlesque made a lot of money for the dunes. (laughs) I bet. So can you tell us about um, Las Vegas park and and, in Las Vegas's, you know, kind of, dipping its toe into horse racing it was uh what's the best how how best to put it it was a poorly conceived idea but uh the gentleman who originally had the idea had uh a lot of uh stars in his eyes so to speak and thought that uh it would be on par with uh some of the uh racing uh, places back east, but, you know, 
one of the problems with Las Vegas is, of course, the heat. And so that, uh, that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so he had a, a very limited uh, couple of months where he could race horses. <laughs> and he had a lot of problems in getting, uh, uh, getting it off uh, the track off the ground. Ultimately, it failed. And um, the land uh, became available, uh, and Kirk Akorium bought uh, a good uh, chunk of the property where the racetrack had once sat and built the International. And the International is is behind the Strip, right? Or was behind the Strip? Right. Yeah, it's on, uh, it's on Paradise uh, just to the north of the Convention Center. And, uh, um, yeah, it's where Elvis uh, Elvis first performed at uh, the Frontier Hotel uh, back in uh, the mid '50s, and uh, it didn't go. Uh, he didn't go over real well with uh, the audience uh, because it was uh, mostly middle-aged uh, couples, and uh, you know, not his fans. And so he would uh, come back to Las Vegas throughout the '60s. In fact, he. Uh, uh, he and Ann Margaret shot uh, portions of Viva Las Vegas on the strip, and it's a, a wonderful time capsule of uh, what uh, not only the strip but uh, downtown and, and Hoover Dam uh, used to look like back in the 60s. And then he also came to town and uh, would catch lounge acts and uh, like Fats Domino at the Flamingo. My parents uh, once... Uh, had drinks with Elvis at the lounge at the Flamingo while they listened to uh, Fats Domino. And uh, when Elvis uh, came back to the International 50 years ago um, and did his first show, uh, my dad saved up, because my, my, both my parents were big Elvis fans, my dad saved up uh, That's as amazing. much money as he could. <laughs> and from my mom's birthday that August, uh, the three of us... I uh, went to the dinner show to see Elvis Presley. Yeah, it's they it's it's cool to see some of the older movies like uh James Bond, uh, Diamonds Are Forever. That was shot in Las Vegas. And yeah. uh and I'm I'm able to recognize a lot of the the buildings and the, what roads they're on. So it's very cool to see um the Las Vegas shot way back in the 60s. So yeah, I also uh, highly, highly recommend the original Ocean's Eleven uh, because a, a lot of that was uh, shot at uh, the hotels like the Sands and uh, this, you know, there's the Sahara and a lot of location shots, especially of the Strip. So, and it all looks so quaint. Yes, it does. <laughs> compared to today, <laughs> yeah, no bustle. Yeah, it's it's the the traffic is a lot different back then. So, I yes. I know the the Moulin Rouge, nineteen fifty five, was the first integrated hotel, um, and uh, probably a lot of people don't know that the the classic Las Vegas Strip was, you know. Sammy J. Davis Jr. broke a lot of the barriers, and how did how did race come into play in Las Vegas? Um, originally, 
uh, a number of people that uh, I taught that I interviewed and talked with um, went to school with uh, you know children of different colors, and it wasn't until after World War II that um, it became more of an issue, and part of that was the uh, the big gamblers that um, the hotels were uh, trying to lure to you know come gamble in Las Vegas. A lot of the big gamblers were from the South, and so that's one reason why the hotel the hotels on the Strip were so segregated. Uh, you know. At the African American performers, they could perform at the hotel, but they couldn't stay at the hotel. They couldn't eat in the restaurants. Uh, Nat King Cole, in fact, had a trailer when he performed that uh, was out behind uh, the hotel. And between shows, he would go back to his trailer, order up food from Foxy's, and have his dinner in his trailer. And then go and uh, go back and do the second show. And then after the show, uh, if, you, if uh, the performers didn't have a trailer like Nat had, they would have to go back to the West Side and stay. And when, when did that change? When, what, what prompted the change? Well, the, uh, one of the stories is it, I, that uh, Jack Entrada, who, uh, who ran the, uh, the Sands, uh, he and Frank Sinatra uh, were good uh, good friends, and Frank Sinatra was very put off by the fact that uh, the performers couldn't stay in the hotel. And he, you know, he talked to Entrada about it, and uh, Entrada very quietly didn't make a big deal of it, but allowed Lena Horne and Sammy Davis and Harry Belafonte to stay at the hotel while, when they were performing there. And that kind of started breaking the color line. It took a number of years for it uh, to get broken up and down the strip and all around town, but um, it, it started on the strip. You mentioned um, Ocean's Eleven and the movies that were filmed in Las Vegas. I mentioned, you know, uh, Diamonds Are Forever. When did Hollywood really start impacting Las Vegas? Um, well, let's see. Hollywood had uh, Roy Rogers had filmed um, a movie uh, back in the mid forties called, uh, Hell Dorado with one L <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in the 1950s, uh, they shot the Las Vegas story and, uh, meet me in Las Vegas. Uh, there is an, uh, a small little known film, uh, that was shot, uh, downtown, uh, in the 1930s. And so Hollywood uh, had an interest uh, in Las Vegas from the, the 30s onward, but it was really during uh, the 50s, the 60s, and the early 70s when um, they took advantage of location shooting in, uh, in Las Vegas. And, you know, a number of films uh, 
were shot uh, using Las Vegas as the backdrop. One of the most famous is The Only Game in Town, which actually wasn't shot in Las Vegas. It stars Elizabeth Taylor and Warren Beatty, and it was basically shot on uh, sound stages in uh, Rome. <laughs> in Rome, and it was supposed to be Las Vegas, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I know... Um, Ronald Reagan actually had a show at the Last Frontier. Do you know? Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? I, I found that amazing. I did not know Ronald Reagan was a Las Vegas headliner. <laughs> well, he uh, it was not a uh, like kind of like Elvis. It was not a, a, a well received uh, show, and. Um, after a couple of weeks, uh, Ronnie gave up and went back uh, went back to Hollywood. But uh, he made fifteen thousand dollars a week for four weeks. Wow! He told stories. He sang with a singing group called uh, the Continentals, and he even performed with uh, trained chimpanzees. <laughs> that I I didn't know that. So that's that's an interesting yeah. piece of trivia. So what? But what about some of the other? interesting acts that came to Las Vegas. Like I, I just learned that the Beatles actually came to Las Vegas. I never knew that. Yes. Uh, the Beatles uh, came to Las Vegas uh, thanks to uh, Stan Irwin. Uh, he was the entertainment director at uh, the old Sahara, and he realized uh, that the Beatles were a big deal to uh young folk to the, to the kids. And so he, he hatched the idea along with uh, Herb McDonald to bring the Beatles, uh, to Las Vegas. But he realized that, uh, there wasn't a showroom in town because back then the showrooms were, you know, com com compared to today, very small. And they sat if you know, uh, 800 people, at, uh, sometimes at the most, maybe in a thousand was, you know, considered a big room. And so, uh, they decided to have the Beatles play the old convention center rotunda and, uh, Stan, uh, reimagined the seating there so that they could sell, uh, tickets. The top ticket price, uh, was $25. And the whole idea was the gamblers would come they could because their kids would want to come to the show. And they did two shows, and basically they landed at McCarran, got in a limo, went to the Sahara, uh, went up the, the freight elevator uh, to their rooms, uh, and they had wanted to play uh, Las Vegas because they wanted to see Las Vegas. And all they really got to see was the inside of their hotel rooms, uh, the inside of their limo, and the inside of the convention center. But uh, the, the people that uh, attended the show uh, or the shows uh, basically say, you know, you couldn't hear a single word they sang because the girls were screaming so loud. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. Did they only play one show? Uh, no, they did uh, two shows and then went back to McCarran and, and flew out. <laughs> wow, okay. So what about some of the other, I'm going to call them classic Las Vegas um, names? Uh, we have, you know, Evil Knievel, 
um, Siegfried and Roy, uh, Liberace, where, how did they get started in Las Vegas? And uh, Lib- uh, Liberace uh, <laughs> basically uh, stretched the truth. Uh, he was a renowned uh, pianist at the time, and um, Maxine. Oh Lord, what was her name? Uh, the entertainment director at uh, the Frontier, uh, Maxine Lewis, uh, got a hold of Liberace and uh, basically asked asked him how much uh, he was making, um, and you know because she was interested in, interested in having him come play the Hotel Last Frontier, and so uh, Liberace stretched the tooth truth and told told her that he was making $750 a week. And in reality, I believe he was making 350 a week, but Lewis agreed to pay him the 750 a week. And that's what originally brought him to Las Vegas. And so from there, he became uh, an international superstar. And, you know, he jumped from uh, the frontier to the Riviera with uh, his shows getting uh, more extravagant. And then from uh, the frontier, or excuse me, from the Riviera, I believe uh, he then made the big jump to the international when Kirk Kikorian opened that in 69. Cause it was, uh, you could, uh, he, he, the stage was big enough. He could uh, drive one of his automobiles onto the stage. He had the dancing waters. It was an extravaganza, as they used to say. Do you remember how much the the first tickets were? Um, hmm. I used to have uh, a menu from uh, seeing El- uh, from uh, the Elvis Presley show. But I can't imagine that the dinner shows cost more than, you know, 35 bucks a head. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people um, can connect, you know, Las Vegas with with uh, Siegfried and Roy and, and probably, you know, not as early as they they really think, but Siegfried and Roy debuted in Las Vegas in the late sixties. I always, I never knew it was that early. Ah, um, yes. Uh, they originally were part of, uh, the Follies, uh, Brugere at, uh, the Tropicana. And uh, from there, they made the jump to uh, the Lido at the Stardust. And then from the Lido, uh, they jumped to the Frontier when they were offered their own show. And they stayed at the Frontier uh, for a number of years and had one of the most popular shows to see in Vegas. And then when uh, Steve Wynn opened uh, the Mirage, uh, they made the jump to the Mirage. And and now their show is, you know, is doesn't exist anymore, but uh, um, they're, they're still, to me, an integral yeah. part of Las Vegas history. Oh, yeah. So what, uh, um, and then Elvis came back into the, um, into the stage when the Hilton opened up, right? Right. Um, he, 
uh, Barbara Streisand opened the International, and uh, uh, it was not a successful uh, show. And then, because uh, uh, Kurt Kikorian and Bill Miller, who was the entertainment director at uh, the International, wanted Elvis to uh, to open the uh, open uh, the showroom, but. Uh, Colonel Parker wasn't keen on Elvis being the you know the first one out there because what if it uh, what if it didn't go over well and all of that and so no he said Elvis would be the would follow Streisand into the showroom and uh, it broke all the records I mean good lord I believe every one of uh, the shows he did 50 years ago because he played here for like a or played in Las Vegas for like a month and every show was sold out uh, before the beginning of summer I think it was wow yeah so so in and the they signed 60s him and- after his first night uh, they made a deal uh, International made a deal with Colonel Parker to bring Elvis back twice a year and all those were sold out too. Yes. Wow. So in the in the sixties and seventies, you know, lots of turmoil throughout the the, the politics of the the U- U.S. How did how did the you know the space race, Vietnam, and all of that affect Las Vegas, or did it? Uh, the space race. Uh, there was the titanium factory out in uh, Henderson. Uh, that uh, helped build uh, parts for the space race. Uh, my dad worked out there for uh, a few years. And so, um, and also too, after uh, Neil Armstrong uh, returned uh, from the moon, they brought back the moon rocks with them and the moon rocks went on display, I believe it was at uh, the Stardust. And so that makes uh, sense. Yeah. And, you know, so as kids, you know, field trip to the Stardust to see, you know, see the moon rocks. (laughs) Uh, So the space race had an impact. Uh, A a bigger impact, of course, was the uh, the Nevada test site because it brought in um, the scientists um, and during the period when it was above uh, above ground testing in the 1950s, the hotels, you know, turned it in, you know, turned turned it into a party. You know, come, you know, women would get atomic hairdos, and there was uh, uh, Don English of the News Bureau took the picture of Miss um, Atomic Bomb, who, who was basically, you know, uh, a showgirl with uh, a cotton mushroom cloud. Uh, <laughs> glued to her strategically, of course. With, you know, yep. She was wearing a bathing suit, but yeah, she had a mushroom cloud on her. And uh, yeah, they turned it into uh, a party atmosphere and it brought people uh, to Las Vegas, you know, especially, ooh, it's a mushroom cloud. Look at that. And I remember as a kid, uh, before uh, the testing went underground, you know, your parents would get you, you know, wake you up early in the morning before dawn so that you could, you know, you could see the mushroom cloud. So, wow. yeah, who knew? <laughs> yeah, I, I worked uh, for a technical services company that 
did support for the test site and the Department of Energy for a while. And I remember they never could tell us when there was a test going on, but you could always tell because the the weather service would would put trailers in the DOE parking lot. And uh, so the, the news people knew way ahead of any employees or associates of the DOE when there was going to be a test because the parking lot structure changed. And uh, so it was interesting. Yeah. So what about, what about Vietnam? How did that affect uh, there Las Vegas? There were uh, protests, uh, not on the scale that uh, there were in other cities, uh, but it was... It it was the uh, Las Vegas didn't didn't escape the counterculture or the Vietnam War. You know, uh, it it was as fracturing to you know a variety of homes uh, across the valley as it was anywhere else. You know, because if you were if you were uh, if you were a young person and you were against the war, chances are your your parents weren't, and so it. Uh, it made for interesting uh, Sunday night conversations around the dinner table. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet. So, Lynn, before we wrap up, you know, being growing up in Las Vegas like you have, and then seeing some of the pictures that I've I've seen on your website, you know, classic Las Vegas. The the men and women are all you know dressed up. They're in suits. Oh, they're yeah. in ties. They're in in evening gowns. And so when did that switch happen from suits and ties and evening gowns to to cutoffs and flip-flops? <laughs> that happened, uh, let's see, I think the last big show, the last show I saw before I went off to college was at the, uh, the original MGM. And that would have been 75, 76, somewhere in there. And I still got dressed up. And so the change probably started to happen in the late 70s, uh, the early 80s. Because before then, yeah, you you had to be dressed up to to, uh, go out. Uh, to to see a show, men had to wear jackets and ties, and uh, women would wear you know fancy dresses and furs, you know outfit sometimes outfits that you know they would never dream of uh, wearing at home back you know, but uh, they felt very comfortable you know wearing uh, gold lame dresses in Las Vegas. Okay, but uh, you know as Nevada. Uh, lost being the only state uh, where it was legal uh, to uh, gamble, you know, uh, Atlantic City uh, legalized gambling very, you know, as as gaming became legal uh, throughout the country, um, this, uh, the dress standards for uh, going to going to see a show were loosened up in Las Vegas in hopes of getting more people to uh to still come and uh, gamble away, okay. Which is kind of unfortunate so, because, you know, it was you know it was great to have a reason to get dressed up. Yeah, and those those pictures are are just so classy. You know, it's just yeah. it's cool to see people like that. So what 
in all of your studies and uh, all of your interviews, what are some of the myths that you would like to tell our listeners that, you know, Las Vegas isn't like that or it is like this? Uh, well, when I went away to college and, you know, uh, people would ask me, you know, where are you from? And I'd say Las Vegas. Uh, it was, oh, my God, what hotel did you live in? <laughs> And it was like, uh, I didn't live in a hotel because they could not imagine that people actually lived there. They they thought that all those waiters and waitresses and all of that, you know, those people flew in to do their jobs. And it's kind of like, no, people actually do live there. And uh, so for a number of years, that was uh, until uh, the mega population boom of the 1990s, that was one of the endearing myths was that, you know, people don't actually live in Las Vegas when in fact, uh, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, we, but, we did. <laughs> uh, you know, there's also the whole idea that, you know, Howard Hughes bought uh, the Desert Inn because he was working with the government uh, to get rid of the mob. And uh, that's a myth uh, because, you know, yeah, he bought the Desert Inn, but the you know, as Ralph Denton said, the same old guys ran it, and so it's not like the mob, you know, suddenly went away. It, it's just that you know, Howard Hughes helped bring along the uh, corporate corporatization of uh, Las Vegas more mm-hmm. than uh, getting rid of the mob, and you know, I mean, the mob was still there because uh, you know. By the mid seventies, we had Frank uh, Rosenthal and uh, Tony Spilatro for crying out loud. So, um, but yeah, there's a number of uh, myths, especially about the strip, you know, the whole idea that uh, Tommy Hall got the idea to, to build the El Rancho because his car broke down on Highway 91. And while he was waiting for a tow truck, he counted the cars that went by and thought, ooh, I should build my hotel right there and put the pool out front and that'll entice people to, to come to my hotel. And he was already in talks with big Jim Cashman, uh, one of the founding fathers and civic boosters uh, at the time. Uh, big Jim wanted him to uh, build his hotel on Fremont Street, but Tommy Hall didn't want to uh, spend the money to buy the land on Fremont Street because it was more expensive. And so he looked over in the county and found himself a deal deal and uh, bought uh, the property at uh, basically Sahara what was then called San Francisco Street, but uh, Sahara and Vegas Boulevard and Biltio Rancho. So and, a lot of Las Vegas history you have to take with a grain of salt. Yeah. And what a lot of people may not know is that the Las Vegas Strip isn't technically, is not part of the city of Las Vegas. It's it's actually managed or governed by the county. Yes. yes. And it's uh, the downtown county line that's the city. at uh, Sahara. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I always wondered why, you know, the mayor of Las Vegas really had nothing to do with the strip. He was downtown. Yes. So. <laughs> but, you know, Oscar, of course, you know, didn't want to make that uh, make that distinction. <laughs> so, Lynn, I want to thank you. I learned so much and it was so good talking to you. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love this interview and have will have learned just as much as I did. So I want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you. I, and I hope they do. And if uh, they're interested in the books, they can go to uh, my website, classiclasvegas.com uh, to buy copies.
no. Uh, the 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 first volume is also it is uh, it's available as an ebook and as a printed book, and so I I will autograph I autograph uh, those copies. And the second book is still only available as an ebook, but um, I'm. Uh, talking with the publisher of the first book, so hopefully, um, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have have it in print as well. 